Open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 12. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew, a series we're calling King and Kingdom. And Matthew's primary purpose in this narrative, this biopic, is to show you and I beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus, in fact, is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that he has come as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he is God's anointed, he is the long-awaited Messiah, and we are now called not just to acknowledge him with our lips, as we sang about this morning, but in fact with our whole lives. Now we are concluding this morning a little section here in Matthew, really Matthew 11 and 12, where two things have been happening simultaneously, and it's, this, it's a powerful paradox, it's a, it's a juxtaposition, but essentially here is what's happening. Jesus turns up the volume in chapters 11 and 12, and he is doing supernatural works. He's not just teaching with authority, he is acting with authority. He's healing, he's exercising demons, blind people are seeing, lame people are walking, deaf people are, are hearing, and Jesus' identity is, being, is becoming more and more pronounced with every great work that he does. But simultaneously, at the same time, the more things Jesus does to reveal himself, the more the hearts of the religious leaders and the Pharisees become hardened to him. And, and these things seem to, to kind of operate in tandem. The more clearly Jesus demonstrates himself, the more the religious leaders dig in, the more they become hardened in their opposition and in their unbelief. And we see in Matthew 11 and 12, conflict after conflict, showdown after showdown. And really, if you want to kind of get a bird's eye view here of the, of the meta message that's in play, the, the, the subtext to all of these conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, I think really fundamentally can, can boil down to this. Who has the rightful claim to call God their father? Who is it who can rightfully claim to be a part of God's family? And the two answers that are being given by one on the one hand, Jesus, and the other by the religious leaders are diametrically opposite. They, they couldn't be more polar opposites. And they're a great example of what we would call man-centered religion versus God-centered religion. See, the Pharisees say that the reason we can claim God is our father, the reason we know we are a part of God's family, that God is on our side, that we are his representatives, is that we take Torah, the law, seriously. We are all about the business of orienting the outward behaviors and aspects of our life externally so that we might appear to be religious. We are ordering our lives externally in a very particular way. We are oftentimes incredibly scrupulous about these external manifestations of the law. Jesus, however, provides a very different answer. It's not that what we do is not important, and it's not that the law of God is unimportant. Remember, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. But Jesus says, 
being a part of God's family doesn't begin externally with what you do. It begins internally with who you are. It comes from the inside out. That, that God's presence and spirit transforms our hearts, convicts us of our sin, leads us to a path of repentance. And his response to them is that you can do all the righteous looking deeds that you want. You can order your life scrupulously according to the law and all of your traditions, but if it does not, but if it flows from a corrupted, um, evil heart, it will do you no good. See, the law, if not submitted to God, will lead you to a path of legalism, self-righteousness, pride. And, and what Jesus wants to make crystal clear to us is that those are impenetrable barriers to being a part of God's family. Those are impenetrable barriers to being a part of God's kingdom. And he is setting forth from here, and it sort of brings this section to a close this morning, which path do you choose? How would you answer the question, what makes someone a part of God's family? How do you know that God is your father? How do you become a part of this eternal family that God is gathering to himself through Jesus Christ. There's no more important answer than that. Many of us are about to, to embark on a journey, maybe a physical journey this week, where we, we are going to be reunited with family members far and wide. And, and, and as we think about the nature of those relationships and what makes one a part of the biological family, as important as those are, Jesus says there's something infinitely more important. Are you a part of God's spiritual, eternal family? And that's where we're going this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew 12, reading verses 43 through 50 to the end of the chapter. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Two separate incidences but as we're going to see, inextricably linked together by Matthew. Verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord, we know that some of us carry wounds related to our families 
that may never be fully healed in this life. And Lord, you, you knew this, which is why you have made a way through your son Jesus to be a part of your family, a spiritual family, an eternal family. And Lord, we ask now that you would direct our hearts and minds to your word, that you would open our minds with your Holy Spirit, that you would speak clearly to us through your word, and we ask your blessing upon it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. The title of this message is All in the Family. If you know, you know. Two points that we're going to be looking at, and these kind of align with the two sections of this text. We're going to, first of all, talk about the rituals of reform. And secondly, the reality of relationship. The rituals of, ref of reform, the reality of relationship. Let's look at the rituals of reform first, and this is this opening illustration. And let's be honest, this passage sounds like a bad demon joke, doesn't it? Seven homeless, demonless, uh, seven homeless demons walk into a bar. I mean, it has that kind of feel for it. Now, let me just say, one of the more difficult, this is one of the more difficult interpretive passages in all of the New Testament. It has spawned no little amount of speculation and uh, commentary. In fact, I was listening to, to R.C. Sproul preach this sermon, and, and you know, technology is amazing. And so R.C. went to be with the Lord a number of years ago, but here he preached this sermon 20 years ago. Um, and one of the things he said is that he, as he was searching the commentaries and looking at all the, what, what this scholar said and that scholar said, he came to realize that none of them knew what they were talking about, right? So I found that incredibly comforting, okay? Um, now, he said that a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, but let me just say this first of all, that I don't think the primary purpose of this little vignette here is to, is to develop this complex theology of, of demonology, right? I, I don't think the point here is, is, is Jesus wanting to, to, to communicate this systematic theology of, of the spiritual world, because that's what immediately draws us to this text, right? We ask questions like, what are the waterless places, Pastor Paul? How can you have seven spirits? You know, what's, what's, what is, I mean, are demons wandering around? And look, all those are important questions. They're just not the primary point of this passage. See, what Jesus is doing here is that he has been engaging the Pharisees, right? And they have just asked for a sign. And what has he told them? A wicked and adulterous nation asks for a sign. You have all the evidence that you need, right, in me. And so upon saying this to them, he then shares an illustration. Okay, this is what I think this is. It's an illustration to show them what their hearts are like and what every heart is like that leans upon the outward manifestations of religion only, the rituals uh, that, that seek to reform and guide behavior apart from the heart. Jesus says, I want you to show, I want to show you Pharisees what that person is like, because that person is you. Look at verse 39. This was from last week. A wicked and adulterous nation ask for a sign. Okay, that's what he says. Now look at the connection here. Look at verse 45. So it will also be 
with this evil generation. So whatever this illustration is trying to say is trying to illustrate something about the way the Pharisees and religious leaders organize their life and live their life according to outward religiosity. So let's see what we can discern here. It says, first of all, look back at the text. There's a man possessed by a demon. It says the demon leaves. We don't know why. We don't know if it was exercise. We don't know if it was bored. We don't know if its inhabitant was on its iPhone all day and all night and is like, okay, I'm done with this, right? Um, We don't know. That's not the point. The point is what happens after the demon leaves. See, it says this demonic presence leaves this man, and what does the man do? It says he begins to get his house in order, cleans and sweeps, right? He be- in other words, he begins to make some changes in his life. He gets his act together. He, he goes to counseling. Maybe he gets a job. Maybe he moves out of his parents' basement. Maybe he reforms his behavior. He stops smoking. Whatever the thing is, he's tidying up all the externals of his life. You see, as the chaos of the demon has left, the man takes this opportunity to make some behavioral modifications, some surface-level modifications. Why do I say that? Because it tells us that while this man's house was tidy and in order, what else was it? Empty. You see, he, he had removed negative influences and behaviors. He, he, had, he had gotten rid of a set of friends, but he hadn't dealt with the underlying issues of his heart that gave rise to the behaviors to begin with. What he's really done and you've heard this expression many times, has begun to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic as it begins to slip underwater. You know, I was in ology the other day, and and depending on what time I'm in ology depends on what I'm drinking, right? So in the morning, it's coffee. In the evening, it's beer. In the morning, this was the morning, so it was coffee, I promise you, right? And there was a group of Christian men, it was, they were actually having a pretty profound conversation, and I overheard one of them say, you know, I've struggled all my life, or much of my life, with alcoholism, having an addiction to, to alcohol. And I made some changes in my life, but it's interesting, while I got rid of the alcoholism, for some reason I started eating all the time and gaining weight, right? He was... He was replacing one addiction with another. It's kind of like I stopped smoking and then I start struggling with this. And we all have had that experience, right? It's kind of like playing whack-a-mole at, at Chuck E. Cheese, or as I call it, up Chuck E. Cheese. Um, wear, your, wear your gloves in that place. I, okay, I promise. It's like we, we, we deal with one issue in our life, but it kind of manifests itself in a, in a different kind of way. Why does this happen? Well, it happens when we're oriented primarily just on externals, just on behavioral change, behavioral modification. Behavioral modification, and again, as important as behavior is, we're not saying that it's not important, but if it doesn't flow out of a changed heart, those things that have plagued you will just reemerge with a vengeance. 
If you don't deal with the guilt or the anxiety or the shame or the pain or the suffering or whatever it happens to be brewing under the surface, it comes back. Now, one of the things that happens here, it says, this is like you Pharisees. You're reordering the externals of your life. And the whole time I'm saying, here I am, come to me. The whole time I'm saying, don't just give me your tithes and your offerings and your sacrifices. Give, give me those. But what I'm really after here is your heart. Every time you harden your heart against that call to me, you get into a little further and further into a really bad place. See, and, and you see this in the life of the Pharisees, is that at the beginning, they're, they're annoyed with Jesus, and then they're bothered, and then they're hostile, and every step of the way, Jesus keeps coming back, coming back, coming back. They keep resisting, they keep resisting, they keep resisting until finally what? They end up with seven demons. They're in a worse place than they began. And what began as an irritation now has manifested itself in murder. Their hearts are that corrupt. But need to understand, church, this is not just their hearts. This is all of our hearts. This is what we do. You see, sometimes it's like coming into your, into your dining room like I, like I did one day and to see water starting to come down the wall and mold was beginning to grow where that water was and water was beginning to buckle the hardwood floors in our dining room. And you could do one of two things then. One, you could say, well, just replace the wood. Just paint over that mold. Our guests will never know, right? Or you go for the leak, right? And that's the nature of our spiritual lives and spiritual dynamics. They had put so much effort into behavioral modification, and for all the wrong reasons, by the way, to be noticed by men, to have a claim, to have a certain status in that culture, they had closed their hearts to the only life-giving reality at their disposal, and that was Jesus. Now, as we, before we kind of delve into that aspect of the text, just, 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 just a couple of encouragements, okay? Christian, real change is possible in our lives, but real change has to be supernatural change. You see, when, when, when we have placed our faith in Christ, guess what? We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the presence of Jesus dwells within us. And as we cooperate with Jesus and his Holy Spirit, as we commune with him, as we draw close in prayer, as we draw close through his word, as we come together as God's people, as we share community together, then God takes those things and begins to, to reform, reorganize, rebuild the substructures of our hearts. And that is a great thing, but it's a hard thing, right? It's not quick. It's like when we built this building 15 years ago, and 
I think we had a, a little, little, little cam, time-lapse time cam that showed how fast the building was going up. That thing was cool to watch in three minutes, right? It was another thing to watch it all happen in three years. It wasn't quite three years, but you, you get what I'm saying. And sometimes it's like that in our spiritual lives. And Jesus is saying, there is a better way. And that way is through me. That, that way is by coming to me and trusting yourself to me. It won't be quick. And, and fair warning, it will oftentimes be painful, but it'll be good. It will be right. It will be God-honoring. And it doesn't mean that you will fully conquer sin in this life. Don't have that expectation. But what you will have, as Eugene Peterson calls it, who's now with the Lord as well, is a long obedience in the same direction. A trajectory that will carry you into glory, into which Jesus will welcome you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So, so be encouraged if you're in the fight. If you're in the fight, if you feel the fight, if you feel the struggle, that's, that's a good thing. That only happens as we are bringing ourselves into the presence of God. And so Jesus, first of all, again, just shows us the futility of man-centered religion, the, the, just the, the ritual aspect of reform. But he also wants to speak to us, secondly, this will be our last point, about the reality of a relationship with him. Look back at the text for a second. It says that Jesus is teaching, and it says that his family shows up outside wanting to speak to him. Now, Mark 3 gives us a hint that they actually think Jesus is a little off his rocker. He's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? You're a carpenter's son, brother. What, what are you doing in here doing this sort of teaching? I think also there is an element here, undoubtedly, where they are very concerned about him because it, we are told in the last chapter that the Pharisees have been seeking how to destroy him, how to kill him. And so his family is is concerned. And so here Jesus is, is teaching, he's exercising, he's doing miracles, he's in the showdown with the Pharisees. Now you have to see the humor in this, right? And it's like Jesus is in the middle of this great teaching and someone comes and pulls on his robe and says, hey Jesus, your mother's outside. She wants to talk to you. It's like when you went to spend the night with your friends and your dad shows up with your retainer, right? And it was... <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh, dad, why, why did you? Or, 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 or you're trying to be cool with your friends, and your mom sends your sister in and says, it's time to go. Come, come get in mom's minivan and drive home. I mean, you know, it's just humiliating, right? And so you, you do have to see the, the humor in this, right? But Jesus, he's quick on his feet, <laughs> and he sees a golden opportunity to talk to us about the nature of true spirituality. See, the, the Pharisees thought it was about ordering the externals of your, of your life. Jesus says, no, no, it's something more fundamental than that. Look at verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Now, what Jesus says in that moment unless you can really place yourself back in that situation 2,000 years ago, is incredibly shocking. Because in Old Testament 
life, family was everything. And I, I don't mean just like we idolize the nuclear family. I don't mean just that. I'm talking about your extended family, your clan, your household, your tribe. All of these things were like a passport that you carried around, sometimes literally in a document, that gave you entrance into the blessings of society. This is your family determined how you were situated in culture. It determined who you married, where you lived, what sort of inheritances and blessings came your way. It, it, it dictated what your status was in that ancient world. There were all sorts of laws about this. Remember when the Israelites came back from exile from Babylon, what was the first thing they had to do before they repossessed the land? Show us your ID. <laughs> Show us what tribe you're part of. Show us who you belong to. This is why there were rules about not intermarrying between tribes, or if, if you were married and then the husband dies, then the brother has to step in and be the father to produce a, a, a line of children to preserve that family inheritance. You, you get the idea, right? This was, this was crucial. And, and Jesus comes in and says possibly one of the most bewildering, perplexing things anyone could say in that context. Who? who, who who's, who's calling for me? My mother, my brother? Let me, let me tell you something. Right here, this is where it's at. Here are my mothers, here are my mother and my brothers and my sister. Now, now before you, you hear something that Jesus is not saying, we know Jesus loved his family. Okay. He, um, he's dying on the cross. Mary is at the foot of the cross with John. And what does Jesus say right before he dies? Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Mary lived with him the rest of her life. Because we, we, we know that it was not until after the resurrection that Jesus' family actually believes in him. Right? James and Jude, who were a part of this little group here, undoubtedly brothers, went on to become leaders in the New Testament church. So, so it's, it's, this is not about Jesus' hostile feelings towards his family. That's not the point at all. The point is that while as important as the physical family is, and it's important, it is, by comparison, inconsequential as it relates to your membership in the family of God. You see, the way God operates in this spiritual family is not through purely bloodlines, although he uses those. What I mean by that is you don't inherit your Christian faith from your granddaddy. You don't say, well, you know, this is, my granddaddy built this church, and my dad was in this church, and, and so we, we inherit our faith kind of like a birthright, or it's passed down to us from our pastor or youth pastor, or we get it from our friends, or it becomes, you know, in that sort of nominal Christianity, being a Christian just becomes 
like being a part of an ethnic group or being part of a, a, a particular physical tribe. And Jesus says, that's not how the kingdom of God works. And let me tell you this, that is amazing news. Because as we enter this holiday season, a lot of us carry a lot of family pain. Maybe your family has, has been the furthest thing from what you would call idyllic or optimal or blessed. Maybe some of you come from great family situations. Many of you do not come from great family situations. There's enduring suffering and pain and sin and abuse and a whole host of other things. And if our hope is in our earthly families, not just most of us, all of us are heading for a life of disappointment, right? Because family members die. They go on. Kids grow up and move away. They disappoint. They break your heart. Spouses turn their backs. Spouses are unfaithful. Even the best of what we would call family here on this planet. You're gathered around the table this coming Thursday. And, and, and it's all bliss and peace. You know in the back of your mind what? It's not going to last. We all go back to our lives. We're all getting older. So-and-so is growing up. So-and-so is moving away. Jesus says, I have a solution for that. Come be a part of the eternal family of God. You wonder who your, your brothers and sisters, who's going to be there for you? Jesus says, here are my brothers and mother and sisters. Guys, Christianity is not a family inheritance, it's a relationship. And we have to ask, well, Pastor Paul, how, how does that happen? How do I become a part of that family? Who, who's, who, who can lay claim to that? Look at verse 50. I think it's the key verse. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now let me ask you this question, what was the will of God related to Jesus and him coming? And let me read a couple of texts to you to what, I, to what I think Jesus is pointing us to here. Later on in Matthew, on the Mount of Transfiguration, listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 17. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, now listen, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Ready? Listen to him. Matthew tells us God's will for you and I is that we listen to Jesus. And what is the fundamental mass message of Matthew? Jesus' fundamental message in Matthew is come to me. Trust me. Submit yourself to me. Entrust yourself to me. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Guys, God sent Jesus 
so that you would believe in him. John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now listen, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, what is God's will? That you recognize the Son, that you believe in the Son, that you have a faith relationship with the Son. God's will is that in believing through the Son, you might have eternal life. You know, some of of you might come from traditions when it comes to the Lord's table that there is that there, there there can be an un, an unhealthy introspection, and here's what I mean by this: that 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 you feel like you have to attain a certain level of worthiness or righteousness or seriousness in order to come to the table. And let me just tell you, I think that's unbiblical. The whole point of coming to the table is not that you are worthy, but what? You are unworthy. And the only qualification for coming to the table is that you know that you have done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, but you are coming solely because you are part of the family of God. Who's a part of the family of God? I love this. Anybody who wants to be. Just come to Jesus. Put aside your agenda. Put aside your external manifestations of what you think it means to be a religious person and entrust your heart to him. And Jesus makes a promise, I will give you rest. Because that's the kind of rest Jesus offers us for this season. It's an eternal rest. It's a glorious rest. It's not a temporary rest, but it's a rest that's found only in him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and just spend a moment or two preparing your hearts before the Lord, reflecting on his word as you prepare to come to the table. And as you do, I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve.